Hi folks, Lee Packett from ICR here, and I am thrilled to welcome you to another episode of Unordinary Course, where we unpack emerging trends and current events to figure out what it all means for the restructuring community and the clients we serve. Joining us today, I am thrilled to say that we have Marshall Hubner, partner at law firm Davis Polk and Ward Well, where he is co-head of the restructuring group. Just a quick note of disclaimer before we kick off, the views expressed on this podcast are mine and those of my guests alone and are not an official position of ABI. And with that, Marshall, welcome to the show. I know it's a crazy time of year. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so coming up on year-end 2023, uh, by the way, a much more interesting time in the restructuring space than recent years past. Um, and there are countless things I'm sure we could discuss, but I did want to spend some time unpacking your views on the current state of the American banking sector. You put out a detailed PowerPoint analyzing the unexpected and profoundly messy demise of Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, our listeners, of course, can pull off the internet. Um, and I did want to spend some of our time on it today. So you went into a deep dive analysis of SVB, what went wrong with a detailed timeline of events pointing out uh, oversights and missteps in your view. Um, again, I recommend everyone go check it out. It's about 42 slides and you can find it with a simple Google search. Uh, but before we get into it, I'm curious, what made you want to focus on SVB in particular? Why tell this story? This wasn't the only bank to fail around this time, right? Sure. H happy to jump in and, and thank you. So look, the, I would say this, Mar March and April of 2023, um, which was also true in the last much more serious financial crisis, were really a shining moment for Davis Polk. We represented, uh, I think, the primary party in all four of the major events of, of that dark era, um, UBS in its acquisition of Credit Suisse, the Signature Bank, Bridge Bank, JPM in its acquisition of First Republic, and, and now we get to your question, the majority creditors of SVB's parent company, SVB Financial Group, which is now in Chapter 11. Um, the clients that we have are among the world's biggest financial institutions. You know, It's of record in the bankruptcy case. Well, our group has grown quite substantially even since our last filing. But you know, many of the country's biggest banks and other institutions are in our group, and we are actually fighting um, in, a, in a relatively serious way with the FDIC um, for them to honor the promises they made to the American people and to all depositors. And so I have been you know, neck deep in that assignment since that bankruptcy case began and was neck deep in SVB issues literally around the clock starting the Wednesday before as you know, sort of rumors of its imminent failure began to impact financial markets. Okay, so the voiceover here, as I think most of us know, but just want to make sure, is that SVB failed primarily due to concentrated risk in treasuries and long-term debt that wasn't recalibrated as rates went up. Um, once they realized there was a problem, management and regulators, while trying their best to put the fire out, how to say, didn't exactly project confidence to the market and SVB experienced a bank run as customers rushed to pull deposits. The FDIC came in to run the bank and the non-bank entities filed for, for chapter 11. Marshall, is that about right? Correct me if I, if I missed anything there. So, you know, it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a pretty positive and optimistic person by nature, but it's actually a little worse than that and a little darker than that. So SVB grew from $57 billion of deposits in 2018 to over $200 billion of deposits by 2022. And what actually happened with the management of that massively larger portfolio is really astonishing mismanagement. They held 
64% of their assets in cash and held to maturity securities, they unwound and were allowed by the regulators to unwind all of their interest rate hedges in 2022. And they had no chief risk officer from April 2022 until they failed. And so what they had was a mistake that I don't even think you know the most neophyte investor would make, which is you know they might have had a need for cash at any time, but they put a staggering percentage of their assets into long-term bonds that were extremely sensitive to interest rate changes. And as of course we all know because we all experienced it, there were very material interest rate changes, you know, in 2023, um, in particular which led to massive unrealized losses. And so what your people, number one, to have a portfolio like that, that is unhedged with that type of exposure to interest rates is frankly just shocking. Um, but then the thing that's worse is that their investor base, their depositor base was the venture capital world. And spiking interest rates also mean radically decreased venture capital activity because they depend on cheap money for a lot of the deals that they're doing. And of course, that community is very technologically interconnected. And so it makes for an almost perfect run on the bank scenario where all yeah. of a sudden sort of your business and your business model gets a lot less sexy, your inflows dry up, your ability to earn a return dries up, and your portfolio suffers you know, just a seismic decrease in its value. And so what happened was they and everybody realized what was happening to their balance sheet. So they tried to raise liquidity way too little, way too late. On March 6th, they sold a big portfolio of available for sale securities and lost almost $2 billion doing so. And that was it because the market saw like, oh my God, they're fire selling assets. They just sold at a $2 billion loss. Isn't this company insolvent if you just project that type of value loss onto the rest of the portfolio? On March 9th, there were $40 billion of withdrawals in one day. Oh and my by God. The evening of that night, $100 billion of withdrawals were teed up for the next day, which of course they could never honor and were seized by the regulators. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, shocking to hear it put like that. Um, you point out in, in, in your presentation that regulators didn't fully appreciate the extent of SVB's vulnerabilities as it grew in size and complexity. Um, why do you think this happened? As you note, the SF, the San Francisco Fed was in there kicking the tires 26 times, 26 times between February 2018 and March 2023. So like every 60 days they were in there. I mean, how, how did something like this get missed? Yeah. So that's a question many people are asking. You know, one of the things that we highlight in the, in the very detailed deck that we posted on, on Gators Pope's LinkedIn account is that the government itself did two kind of postmortems, one, which is called the bar report, which came out frankly, pretty quickly. I think many would say too quickly on April 28th. Um, and that is a somewhat political document. Frankly, it blames the prior administration for sort of setting a culture and tone, while also certainly as as governmental self-evaluations go, being relatively self-critical. The second report that came out on September 25th is by the Office of the Inspector General of the Federal Reserve. Um, it is much more self-critical slash critical about the Fed's performance and does not truck with the theory that this really was caused by sort of, you know, 
philosophical laxity in the prior administration? The real answer is that we rely on our bank regulators, most importantly, to do one thing, which is to make sure that our banks are safe and sound and that depositors can't lose money, right? They're not here to be profitable. They're here to make sure depositors never lose money from a regulatory perspective. And, and the most important you know, metric of that is something called CAMELS, which is an acronym, Capital Asset Quality Management Capability earnings, liquidity, and sensitivity to market risk. And if you think back on what I said a few minutes ago, pretty much every letter in the word camels was severely subpar. And so what would you the feeling that one definitely gets from reading these reports is that there were a lot of people walking around, you know, at, at the bank issuing very small tickets and very small like need to fix this on small things, on technical things. And they just completely missed the forest for the blades of grass. It's not even the forest for the trees. Like there were no interest rate hedges. There was no chief risk officer. There was an outrageous concentration of risk in securities whose value gets decimated by rising interest rates. And they just missed all of that. And instead were working on like, you know, almost peccadillos. Um, and I think, you know, people should just read the reports, especially the OIG report, which lays it out in a fair amount of detail. Marshall, you spent a lot of time focusing on how the move from RBO to LFBO status wasn't handled properly, and this compounded a lot of the challenges facing the bank. Could you, this is complicated stuff, could you unpack that a bit for us? Let's let's start with the basics. What is RBO and what is LFBO? Sure. And look, I, I think that the move from RBO to LFBO, I'll explain in a minute, was definitely important. But fundamentally, any bank examiner should have caught and flagged and demanded a, a fix for these really, really serious fundamental problems. I mean, no interest rate hedges, no chief risk officer, massive concentration in long-term bonds susceptible to interest rate changes. You know, that was really the problem, but what compounded it? So the Fed divides banks into four categories, a community banking organization, which SME was not, a CBO, smallest bank, under 10 billion, pretty light touch regulation, frankly, what what SBB was was before it was recategorized was an RBO or regional banking organization. Those were banks with up ten billion to hundred billion in assets, and there was about a two and a half to one staffer to bank ratio for banks like that, with four exams per year. Um, then, when you become an LFBO, which is a large and foreign bank organization, which is banks with over a hundred billion dollars everything but the country's very, very largest banks that have their own super special category. Um, you move to a world where you have about a 20 to one staffer to bank ratio, which you're basically supposed to have instead of, you know, about two and a half staffers dedicated to your bank, you have about 20. And the dedicated supervisor team is supposed to be in the bank year round, monthly examinations, risk specific exams, comparing you to other LFBOs, et cetera. And massive amounts of information to examiners. You know, the, the the LFBO team essentially never did an overlap handoff with the prior team. So all the things that the RBO team, the very small RBO team, had identified and thought about, um, just got sort of dropped, and they left. And then the new team just sort of entered the building and had to start to figure it out. And frankly, the LFBO status change happened much too late because, as I mentioned at the outset. 
they already had over $200 billion of assets by the time they failed, and they had had well over $100 billion for a while. And so it was a combination of you know just upgrading them too little, too late with no handoff, which further exacerbated the fact that the really life and death issues for the bank had been missed and essentially continued to not be addressed. Sounds like mistakes were made. Um, looking back at this episode, there are numerous examples um, of communications issues hampering the companies and the government's response. Uh, most notably, from from my vantage point, was in the Chapter 11 case where someone representing the FDIC had to walk back statements on whether the deposits um, at SVBFG were insured uh, or not, um, attributed to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Um, this uncertainty over the basics, uh, to me, is is really incredible. How do you view this disconnect? Was there was this a matter of of comms teams and legal advisors not being on the same page, or does it speak to a larger issue? Again, I'm I'm just shocked that there was so much uncertainty over one of the more basic central questions regarding a bank failure. Yeah, so it, it's actually much more serious than that. I, I don't actually think it's a communication failure at all. I think it's a very serious attempt improperly to change the government's position from what they told the entire country again and again, and what actually kept us from having a run on our bank system. So, you know, when when the federal government you know first addressed the SVB situation. They had first did something called the DINBI. I'll, I'll spare the acronyms, but you know, from Friday to Monday, from Friday to Sunday, rather, um, depositors were told you're only getting the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and the rest, like you know, we'll talk about it later. Like you'll get receivership certificates, maybe you'll get an advanced dividend. That was very, very poorly received by the market, and there was immediate, massive fear about a total failure of many of our regional banks and many bank stocks actually halted from trading because the fear was so serious. You know, many people, you know, by now they may have forgotten, but for a few months, I think everybody knows where they were on Friday, March 10th. Um, you know, First Republic, Pacwest Bank Corp, Signature Bank, you know, lots of banks were seeing massive outflows as everybody was running to the country's very largest banks as sort of a bastion of security. On Sunday afternoon, having realized that we were headed to a very scary place, the regulators radically switched direction. And the Secretary of the Treasury, along with the FDIC and the Fed, announced that the systemic risk exception provided for under federal legislation in the wake of the last crisis had been invoked and that all depositors of Silicon Valley Bank were going to be paid in full and would all have full access to their money on Monday morning. And that was repeated endlessly in every possible setting by Secretary Yellen, by the Vice Chair of Supervision, Michael Barr, by Acting Controller of the Currency, Michael Su, by the Chairman of the FDIC, Martin Bloomberger. They went to Congress multiple times and repeated again and again, like, everybody stay calm. It's all okay. All depositors of SVP are safe. They also told that to the bankruptcy court, both orally and in writing, early in the case, because it was relevant to things going on in the bankruptcy, including, ironically, sort of an objection by the Department of Justice about, is SVB's money safe? And is SVB financial, the parent company, the debtor, is their money safe? And, and the FDIC stood up and said, absolutely, it's net of any set-off claims, 
It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. So just like they had told Congress multiple times and the American people, you know, we are a depositor and our money is 100 cent good, but for any federal claims, which none of which, by the way, have even as of now in late December ever been articulated. Then essentially what I think happened, I mean, we don't know yet because it's all in discovery and it's going to be litigated. They got kind of buyer's remorse and said, boy, you know, we, we saved the banking system. We averted the crisis. Now let's see if we can like retroactively amend our promise to the world and to Congress and to the American public and lower the price tag. So what they're saying now, which is really pretty shocking, candidly, is, oh, no, when we told the country and Congress and everyone again and again, all depositors are safe, all depositors will be paid, all depositors have full access to their deposit accounts. What we really meant was the FDIC has the discretion in its sole and absolute judgment to decide which depositors to pay and which depositors not to pay. And and we just spoke more broadly to calm the markets, um, which is really amazing because what they're basically saying is, we didn't mean it. You shouldn't have believed us. It's not a bankable promise. And now we're going to pick some depositors and decide not to pay them. And the reason that's so radical, of course, is, I think is obvious, which is what happens in the next crisis when they say, hey, you know, people at, you know, Bank of X, you don't need to withdraw your money. It's totally safe. All deposits will be honored. And someone says, well, remember what they did last time? They said that, but then a few months later to get out of honoring some of the deposits, they said, oh, you didn't see the disclaimer on our website or in the press release that nothing we say can be relied upon. If we can't trust the federal government, how is the federal government going to solve and forfend and, and mitigate future bank runs and financial crises. So it, it's it's really very serious, both as a citizen and as the lawyer who happens to represent, you know, 30 of the world's biggest financial institutions, um, trying to just get what the government promised them and America and Congress when they invoked a systemic risk exception back in March 2023. Yeah, I think everyone listening to this uh, podcast can understand that we're talking about something elemental or foundational to uh, American society here. Um, zooming out, we have a situation where a number of entities fell down and failed in terms of what they were supposed to do in this situation. Um, it doesn't feel like the last chapter, as you said, um, in this story has been written. Um, that said, where do we go from here? Do you expect anything meaningful on the regulatory front to change going forward? It feels like this is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I'll start writ small and then maybe get a little bit larger, right? I mean, first of all, you know, we heard a lot beginning of the case of, you know, maybe the parent company is, is economically liable to support the bank because there's a thing called the source of strength doctrine. Well, what the statute actually says, it was put in place in 2010 after the last crisis was the appropriate federal banking agency for a bank holding company or savings and loan holding company shall require the bank holding company or savings loan holding company to serve as a source of financial strength for any subsidiary, dot, dot, dot. So the obligation was actually on the government. The, the law required the government to cause the parent company to be a source of strength where necessary, and they never did that. 
That was another example of failure. They actually months earlier, you know, shored up the bank, including by asking more of the parent company. None of this would have happened. So, you know, they're the ones who did not comply with the law. Second, the statute also said not one year, no later than one year after the transfer date, which is a long time ago, 13 years ago, the appropriate banking agencies shall jointly issue final rules. The number of final rules that have been issued after 13 years is zero. We don't actually need more legislation. We just needed to the regulators to actually do the job that they were supposed to do. They had all the tools and they should have had the visibility. And what they should have done is forced the bank and the parent company to enter into what's called a CALMA, Capital Adequacy and Liquidity Maintenance Agreement, or commence other regulatory action or threatened it. And then the bank would have had to fix itself by getting interest rates or diversifying its asset base or having a risk officer or having the parent company, you know, act sooner or raise capital or guarantee it. And so they just didn't do the job. It was not the absence of a tool. It was the absence of a tool being wielded by the entity that was supposed to, you know, might there be new legislation? Sure. Because politically, it's much easier to say, if only we'd had the right tools, this wouldn't have happened. But fundamentally, Davis Polk is not of the view that that is the correct analytic. Just like after the last crisis, they put in place the source of strength doctrine and require that there be rules issued within a year. And the source of strength doctrine, which has been there since 2010, was never invoked and no rules have been passed for 13 years. So, you know, my guess is we may see more onerous burdens. I mean, I don't want to get overly technical about sort of Basel three end games and the like. And I'm also not a bank regulatory lawyer, so I'd be a little bit, although hopefully not too far out over my skis. But I think the fear is that we get some pretty bad legislation that feeds the storyline of, oh, we just didn't have the right tools because ultimately we need really appropriate, careful oversight. But if there are things put in place that simply are burdensome and costly, but don't fundamentally provide new critically needed tools, then it's all burden, right? Because ultimately we as taxpayers and depositors, we pay the cost of all this. It's never costless. It all gets paid, you know, passed down to customers. And so the hope is that people figure out, you know, is anything really new necessary or do people just not do their jobs very well? Mm-hmm. And if it's the latter, I mean, what can be done? I mean, you know, just the government's going to do a better job next time. Make that promise to to to, to the citizenry and the and the financial markets. I mean, it's almost darker and scarier and more ominous to to look at a picture and say, "Well, we had the tools here, just no one used them." Look, what I would say is this: I, I think these are all good people trying to do their jobs. We all make mistakes. I don't think there was some you know diabolical person anywhere who said like you know, "Oh, I'm going to secretly let SVB fail because I've you know." shorted the bonds of the parent company. And so I'm going to ignore all the the klaxons that should be going off at the bank. Like people make mistakes. And the question is, how do you learn from them and do better? And so, for example, having a review system that actually focuses on the five, six core letters of camels. And, you know, you don't get to second tier issues that are more in the traffic fine peccadillo, unless you're hundred percent confident that appropriate balance sheet, appropriate interest rate hedging, appropriate liquidity, appropriate earnings, appropriate management. I mean, just, you know, the notion that a $200 billion bank 
had no chief risk officer for 11 months. It's crazy. I mean, it just, it's just crazy. It's like literally yeah. crazy, right? Like, so, so I think there are lessons to be learned. I think there are a lot of very good people. Look, the people who go into government service and agree to spend their lives trying to keep us all safe and do right by the country are on the whole extraordinary people who I think like hopefully the rest of us want to do the right thing. It's just in this case, they just miss things that we can't afford to have missed again. And hopefully those will be the real lessons learned. There's also a GAO report, by the way, because there are requirements, including when the systemic risk exception is triggered, that the GAO do an analysis. I also know there's an aside. The report confirmed eight times that the government's decision was to pay all depositors. Um, but that's an aside. It also helps analyze what happened. So, you know, hopefully serious people are, are taking the lessons learned to heart, including with respect to the tools that they already had. Mm-hmm. So projecting out into 2024 and beyond, how do you view the banking sector in the United States apart from SVB? Are there more of these scenarios waiting to happen or do you think it's a, you know pretty much a one-off? Well, Signature Bank failed also, so it was a two-off. CS failed also, so the three-off. And First Republic had to be acquired, so it's at least a four-off, right? And so th- there was much more pain than just SVB. Look, I, I am guessing, you no. Know, Bank supervision is an area where there is, understandably, I think in many ways, maybe not always, very little transparency. Like, we don't know what's going on between the bank and its regulators. But I I have to imagine that the lessons actually learned by what caused the failure of multiple banks and almost tipped us back to, you know, at least 2008, 2009, and maybe worse, um, are being taken very, very seriously by both state and federal bank regulators. And I have to believe that, you know, these set of risks are now being looked at in a, in a much more focused way. Because again, the tools are there, right? Capital, asset quality, management capability, earnings, liquidity, and sensitivity to market risk are literally what sunk the banks and are literally the Fed's primary concerns. And so I'm guessing mm-hmm. that they're a lot more focused on them now than they were at SVB. One would hope. Uh, Marshall, in the time we have you, um, really want to get your thoughts on where else do you see trouble in the American economy? What areas are going to keep, you know, restructuring pros busy? Tell me we're going to be busy next year. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, I never wish ill on any organization, um, but, you know, we are sort of the ER doctors or oncologists of capitalism. And so, you know, we we are busier when when things are tougher. So look, I think the cycle that we're seeing now is somewhat atypical. You know, a lot of the time, an entire industry has to be reorganized, restructured, recapitalized, thinned out. You know, there are eras where, you know, half of America's airline seats were in bankruptcy at the same time. You know, almost all of its coal companies were in bankruptcy at the same time. Many of its newspapers were going through restructuring at the same time, steel companies, auto, et cetera, right? What I think we're seeing now is is a much more sort of secular cycle where, you know, we're not really through essentially the aftershocks of COVID and many organizations saw dramatic drops in their liquidity and profitability and frankly broke every one of the in-emergency break glass covers on top of sources of liquidity and borrowed, you know, to the hilt. 
And obviously interest rates, while they may be moderating now, certainly went up an awful lot from where they were, you know, two, three, four years ago. And so what we're seeing essentially is the bottom X percent of companies in many industries who are hitting maturity walls in 2024, in 2025, you know, those who are able to have done in some cases, in many cases, happily with our assistance, very complicated liability management transactions to retool or roll you know, out into the future, a lot of their balance sheets and their upcoming liquidity needs. You know, some are not able to do that. Their maturity walls are looming with a solution that might have to be statutory. And even the ones where we sort of, you know, bought people another 18 months, two years, you know, et cetera, of runway, that runway still may be limited. At the end of the day, there are weakest links in many industries and many industries are over levered for the sort of mid to longer term. And so I think there's a reason we're already very, very busy, despite the stock market being at, you know, hitting highs almost every day. There is still, I think, a lot of underlying weakness that is going to need some very serious attention. Marshall, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Oh, my pleasure. That's Marshall Hubner from Davis Polk, and that is our show. Thank you to the good folks at ABI for letting me do this, and special thank you to you, the listeners, for making it this far. If you like what you heard, do us all a favor and hit the like or subscribe button. And even better, send us a note with your comments. Comments. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you didn't. All, all input welcome here. Again, I'm Lee Packy from ICR. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.